timing matters so much more in cybersecurity than actual technical depth of an exploit. It's really sometimes just a 15 minute or shorter time frame that you are exposed and you're not looking at that, but cyber criminals are. You're listening to This Much I Know, the CGN podcast. Hey everyone, it's been a little while since we've had some great interviews, and part of the reason is because there's been so much change going on right now in the world. And I think sometimes one of the interesting things to do is dive into the areas that are most affected by all this change. Change, in our case, has been the impact AI has had on many things, but also a lot of the geopolitical changes, and in that context is how I met our next guest at a geopolitical dinner, Roger Fischer. I had an amazing chat with him about the impact that the world um, has on companies, state on state uh, versus cybercrime and everything having to do with that. And as I started to understand more about his background, the more I understood that he came from a background of crypto and from starting a company to then now starting a second company, but this time in cybersecurity, I was intrigued. And so that's why I thought it'd be amazing to chat with him today. So welcome, Roger. Thank you, Carlos, for having me here. So let's just start off with the beginning. I know that you started off your career doing some work as a consultant, but you quickly went into making Lightbit. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Lightbit, some of the features that it started off with were more resembling algorithmic trading. Um, It then started evolving into something that resembled a bank, potentially more of a brokerage and exchange, but really focusing on the consumer client, not necessarily a more professional client. And effectively, it is what it is today. But maybe you can walk us through the evolution, how it felt from within, Roger. Yeah, let me start by saying how I got introduced into crypto. And we're talking 2012, so it's a long time ago. I was an ethical hacker or security consultant, like you mentioned for a while. And I never, ever interacted with Bitcoin up until that point in 2012, when I breached into this American company, but I was underage. And they wanted to pay me as a thank you, a buck bounty for reporting that. But they couldn't wire me any money because uh, the bank account that I had was not able to transfer international bank wires. And at that point, he suggested he'd send me some Bitcoin. And we're talking Bitcoin being $50 at the time, right? So a very different time frame. And I never heard of Bitcoin, but I was immediately intrigued by the technology and its potential. And I started experimenting on it, started building my own RPC tools around it. And... At some point, that led us to meet together with with one other co-founder, building basically an arbitrage trading bot. And from that moment onward, in the end of 2012, we basically started building on this platform on Lightbit and building features on top, building services on top. And especially in the Netherlands, we saw very strong adoption early on. And I went to university, but at the same time, kept building this platform to at one point I dropped out to work full time on it because we were just going very fast and the sky was the limit. Yeah. Okay. So during that time frame, which is from what I can tell on LinkedIn was something like seven years, you probably saw a little bit of everything. And I think for those that read the description of this podcast episode, focusing on cybersecurity, one of the things that I'm very curious about is the kind of things that you witnessed. Think about the tension that you had between building a product that was helpful for people dealing with crypto, but at the same time, keeping bad actors at play. Just maybe walk us through some fun anecdotes, top three anecdotes of your time running Lightbit and seeing a whole bunch of things happen. 
So what I learned from my time at Libit, and you're right, like it's, it was seven years and probably about five years of full time, is that there's so many things that you never, 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 ever guess you would have had to deal with as a founder. And I think that security incidents was probably top of that list. And at Libit, we've had our couple of security incidents. It makes a lot of sense. If you look at it from a threat actor perspective, you are a big honeypot. You're storing hundreds of millions in crypto assets for your customers. And if you are making mistakes there, and obviously they don't know that a large part of that is in cold storage, or they might know, but they still want to try, you can be a massive payday for them. So immediately from day one, we had a large focus on us from a threat actor perspective. And we saw that in just well, plain attacks happening on our website and our apps and our APIs. But perhaps more interestingly, and also a little bit more scary was that during our onboarding process for employees, we had them call their cell phone provider to make sure that they had a pin code on their phone number. Because what we saw happening all the time was the moment someone shared on LinkedIn, they started working for us, their cell phone provider was being targeted by these threat actors in order to get access to their phone number and then get access to potential 2 of a codes, et cetera. So we had a large focus on, on, on cybersecurity within the company. And I think it's in part what made me, I mean, I always was already excited about cybersecurity and ethical hacking, but I think it, it never really went away. And a big chunk of why I enjoyed building Libit so much was also because of this cybersecurity focus. Yeah. Okay. So you gave us one good story. And I think the reason why I want to focus on these stories is that sometimes when we talk to people who are in a cybersecurity company, they can very easily trivialize or fantasize about scenarios that could happen to one of their customers. But the reason why I'm amused by exploring these stories a little bit further is because they're real stories, right? And so that's an interesting thing. I hadn't really thought about as soon as an employee updates her LinkedIn for a high-profile target, that they become targets. So maybe share a couple of other anecdotes. Yeah, another great one, and it ties really well to the services that we now have with Hadrian, is that it's all about real-time monitoring. And it did go wrong pretty badly once in 2017. And what happened was that a threat actor got access to our production database. And by all accounts, this should never have been possible. There were so many technical obstacles in front of that production database. It was IP whitelisted. There were strong passwords running on separate servers that really should not simply have been pointing to the internet. But what happened was that our third-party hosting provider was updating their server infrastructure. And during that moment, the production database of our data was exposed to the internet for six hours. And in those six hours, a threat actor found it. And at that point, there was still password on it. So again, not necessarily directly a problem. You find exposed database servers all the time. And most of the times, they're not really interesting. However, in this case, he was also able to actually fish the hosting provider for root passwords to that server. And it was a very advanced phishing attack. And I can't really share any more details around the actual tech because well, in the end, we had to settle with this hosting provider. But I was just 
almost impressed with the ingenuity that the cyber criminal used to get access to our systems, but also with the timing aspect of it. He must have been monitoring our attack service for a long time to pinpoint the six-hour time frame where the production database was in an update state and exposed to the internet, and was then also able to exploit it and extract a lot of user information. And my learning from this, and I guess that by now it's perhaps quite common knowledge, but it's really that timing matters so much more in cybersecurity than actual technical depth of an exploit. It's really sometimes just a 15 minute or shorter time frame that you are exposed and you're not looking at that, but cyber criminals are. I can give you other examples of customers that we now have at Hadrian that are updating their WordPress environments. And for only 10 minutes, there's installation folders exposed to the internet. And we are usually able to exploit those as well. And those are the small details that you take from, well, basically learning them on the road, running a company that has this cyber posture as Libit. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Real-time monitoring and timing matters. And I think we're going to get into that with Hadrian a little bit more. But maybe another one that you might think sort of is not the most intuitive one that sometimes people just take for granted. That's a good question. There was only one other cyber incident and I was luckily not with the company anymore, so it was not my shit to deal with. Oh. Uh, but it's interesting because we had an internal incident as well where one of our employees was actually specifically interviewed with us and etc with the purpose of sharing the data that he had access to as a customer support agent with external criminals if it can happen to one of the largest countries in the world with one of the largest militaries in the world it can probably happen to a company exactly and it's much more difficult to actually monitor for that because it's something that well, most people actually simply do not consider. And also it's internal systems. Malicious detection and anomaly detection usually happen on logging services and well, larger data buckets that are monitoring traffic. But going from the inside, it's often not noticed. Yeah. Uh, and that was also a, a very painful incident for Lightbit. Well, I think that these are very good sort of foundation for the rest of our chat, because I think we can use them as anecdotes for some of the additional stuff. But I want to go into Hadrian now, and I want to talk... A little bit about that transition. Why did you leave Lightbit? Why did you start Hadrian? Like these are all life decisions, right? Not small ones. So tell us about that story. For sure. And and look, with Lightbit, at some point it became obvious, like I said, it, the company grew quite significantly. We were managing hundreds of millions of assets for our customers and regulators were starting to take notice. And especially in Germany and, and the Netherlands, the regulators were quite strict. And it was fairly obvious from the beginning that a more senior management team was going to be able to run a company like Lightbit. But by the time I was 20 or 21, it was unlikely that the regulator would really be confident with me being in charge of that shit. So as a shareholders, and we had at that point already raised also external capital, we basically made the decision to start hiring for external CEO, external CFO, etc. And we were quite successful in that. We found a great management team. And I stayed with the company for another two years till around 2019, 2020. But at that point, I was there for almost eight years. And it felt really natural to also, well, move on. And it sounds a bit silly because you really jump in this empty void of your daily routine, right? Going from literally 80 hours work week 
to almost do nothing. Actually, I went back to university for six months to finish my bachelor's degree in electroengineering, which was a lot of fun, but absolutely not similar to any of the work I had been doing before. And basically at that point, I left the company to be led by the new management team and I moved to London. I was 24, 25, life was still way ahead of me and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I took some time, there was COVID and during COVID, I realized I like operating a startup so much that I thought, well, perhaps I can use some of the learnings I have from my first go and go at it again. I reached out to a good friend of mine, Oliver Beck, who at the time was working at another cybersecurity startup. And I said, hey, man, you've been there for now for seven years. It's never going to end up working. Come start something with me. And the rest is history. The rest is history. All right. What was the first product you launched? Obviously, as a startup, you were building many MVPs. And especially in the space that we're trying to tackle, it was always going to be a very holistic product with a lot of features. And if you want to compete in this market, you need to be in a very much advanced stage of your product. So the first non-MVP, the first product that we launched with customers, it took us almost a year. And we launched it in August 2022 at Black Hat in the US. And that was actually already quite an advanced version of our MVP. The fundamental features of the continuous external monitoring, adding context with AI and finding risks with, well, largely conventional method, but then fully automated. Um, that was all at that point in the platform. And obviously, since then, we've added many features in terms of the individual capabilities of reconnaissance and risk finding, context finding, but also a lot of, well, enterprise readiness features around how do I share data? How do we connect to our customers? And that was probably something that I underestimated at the beginning is the amount of features that you build that as a founder that's passionate about cybersecurity, I don't really feel like they are that value adding because, well, if I find more pressing risk, if I can find more data on you that might lead to a compromise, that feels to me like direct value. That feels to me like this is what I should have been focusing on. And we did. But turns out that if you have that data, you still need ways to communicate that data in a concise and obvious way to your customers. And communicate in this case means building APIs, building reporting tooling, building integrations with other cybersecurity environments to basically, well, integrate into these workflows and help these customers actually streamline of those procedures. And we saw quite a shift after that first launch in August of our development team starting to work more on those types of features, making us more enterprise ready than the first type, which is really about direct value adding cybersecurity insights. Let's unpack all those services and all the things that you're doing by talking a little bit about the enemy, right? It's helpful to sort of look at the weaponry vis-a-vis -vis what the threats are, right? And cybersecurity is a rapidly evolving field. I think AI is going to add more complexity to it for various reasons we can get to in a second. And then there's threats that are well-known and documented that everyone needs to be aware of. And then there's emerging threats that are perhaps a little bit more unusual, and we can talk about those in a second. But let's first go through a catalog of not necessarily the complete catalog, but by volume of attacks that you're aware of, what it is that is going on right now in terms of the volume of attacks that your customers are going. So I'll give you a few state-on-state -state actors, criminal organizations, individual actors, uh, competitors. Help us understand 
in your statistical awareness of all the different types of attacks, what are the priorities? Which are the ones that do it the most to the ones that do it the least? It's a very good question. And then the answer really varies wildly depending on the type of company that you are and the location of the company, right? Yeah. And very concrete example, in Europe, companies don't, I mean, I'm not going to say don't, but hardly spy on each other, right? It's not common for Siemens to have a look at Philips. And if it's ever found out, there's huge lawsuits and it's considered to be a big deal, reputation, but also fines from regulators, etc. If you're looking at the Middle East, the main adversary companies face are direct competitors because they are trying to get information on each other. And it's very common, actually, the companies are, well, basically hiring companies to also look at their competitors. So the type of threat actor is very different. I want to hear more of these. It's like the, yeah, no, honestly, it's like the World Cup of actors. Here we go. It's a bit scary, but it's also exciting. And honestly, to take one step back, right? The exciting part for me about cybersecurity, the things that makes me wake up excited every morning is that we can solve really technical questions and really technical problems that I'm excited about solving. Well, at the same time, you get this adrenaline kick from being able to see threats and act on data so real time. Mm. And it almost sounds horrible, but sometimes when a customer has an incident, you almost get excited. So, okay, let's see, what can we do? What can we, how can we help? But yeah, excited and concerned. But you get a little bit addicted to it. If it is like you want to see things happening. And I think that also it differentiates cybersecurity from the other software industries in the sense that the people that usually you see working in cybersecurity, they are highly energetic. They want to see things moving and they're excited by yeah protection, defense, those types of subjects. Okay. So if we continue down this path of like weird things... We left with direct competitors spying in certain parts of the world. Where are you going with that? If you're looking at Europe and the US being the Western market, the majority of attacks are happening in ransomware or data breaches, right? Those are the two main threats a company can face. State actor espionage is really rare and is mostly occurring in industries that are very interesting from a state actor strategic level. Like... Companies like ASML, well, they face very different threats than a supermarket grocery chain, for example. I I doubt that a grocery chain will ever really face state actor attacks, and therefore they probably should also not overinvest in defense against that. However, a supermarket chain will much more likely be a target of ransomware and other disruptions because it's likely they're a little bit of an easier target. And at the same time, their disruption in the process is going to cost them a lot of revenue capital and therefore there's a high return to actually infiltrate there and to answer your question what are the most likely threats that a company can face it's really depending on the location and the type of company that you are but yeah definitely ransomware is top of mind nowadays and there again within ransomware deployments you see two kind of streams happening whereas one is primarily deployed via social engineering and the other one is deployed via technical exploitation of your infrastructure. So it's a bug in your system that actually allowed someone to run software. Interestingly enough, and perhaps we're going too deep into the whole ransomware thing right now, but you're already seeing ransomware being commoditized and becoming their own industry with their own vendors, where they're specialists in initial access 
which is well getting access to the first system, but there's also specialists in writing the software, understanding the bugs that can actually exploit encryption technology, for example, but also experts in facilitating the customer support around buying the crypto and paying off the debt. And you see that sometimes in a single attack, there's five or six different groups involved from start to finish and with a single company being the victim. Where are these groups based? Again, all over the world with a strong focus on Russia, India, Ukraine, and South America. I think that the tendency, if I could summarize, it really often boils down to economic circumstances and economic opportunity there as well, right? In the end, if you live in a country where international deployment of cybercrime is relatively easy because there's good access to internet, etc., but you don't have a strong local economy, therefore you don't have the means to facilitate you, automatically you start seeing a shift to people becoming part of more scams and, and internet crime. Russia and India have been very strong in that, but you now start seeing it coming from South America as well. You actually saw quite a decrease in Russian activity ever since the war with Ukraine. And you also saw a decrease in activity of Ukrainian ransomware groups. Um, mm. Because also Ukraine used to be quite a big supplier of ransomware in the world. So if we take this whole part of our chat as, let's say, status quo, right? That's been the case with changes here and there. What emerging trends have you seen in the last, let's say, five months that has twisted the spaghetti around a little bit? I'm kind of hinting a little bit on any impact AI might have had on that, but maybe not. Maybe it's there's something else. There's geopolitical issues or anything else. I just want to hear, is there any trend that you're seeing? No, I think it's a good question. And it might have been a trend as an industry you've been seeing for the last two years, but the impact you're starting to see right now, and I briefly touched upon it, but the whole commoditization of this cybercrime and the amount of process involved and in, in also automating that, you now start seeing that not just large companies are targets anymore, but you start seeing that almost everyone is a target. You're also seeing that threat actors moved away from targeting specific companies, but they're starting to move to targeting specific technologies. It's so easy nowadays to, well, basically scan the whole internet for a specific bug and then use that to just attack everywhere you see that bug. And at that point, you can exploit potentially tens of thousands of companies. And we've seen it happen with a very simple use case, basically. And that... Again, the outcome of this is that security through obscurity, which used to be a saying mm -hmm. in a sense, I've hidden my problems well enough that it's very unlikely that someone will ever look at it. It just doesn't work anymore. We're moving towards a point where security through obscurity mm -hmm. is, is simply not okay anymore. Mm -hmm. And that if you have vulnerable systems somewhere, it's not a question of if they will be compromised, but the question of when will they be compromised? Mm. And it's not about years anymore, but we're talking months, if mm. you're lucky. Mm. Uh, and the same goes for newer exploits. We had a couple of large, well, probably the biggest one was Log4j in the last year. And it already feels old, but you still see it so common in systems and you still see it so commonly exploited still one of the main deployments of ransomware as well. It's the time to market of some of these bugs that really scare me. Log4j went live less than 24 hours later. There was scanners all over the internet looking for it. 
But not only that, even now you're talking about automated deployment of these types of tests in minutes after a bug comes out. And last week, there was a large incident with WordPress environments. And again, you saw that on one day, the bug was published by a researcher. Almost 2 million websites were vulnerable at the time. The writer of the software published a fix and people could update at that time. But some of our customers were informed by us of that bug the same day or a day after they received that information. And they were able to resolve the issue in five or six days, but that was already too late. They got compromised in the time in between. And that is really where we're going is that just being completely automatically detecting some of these threats might not be enough anymore in a couple of years from now. You mm -hmm. also have to move towards automated remediation. And, and that's really where we are not seeing enough right now. And to be completely frank, it's a huge problem. I don't really see how we're going to solve that quickly because there's so many different aspects that come into remediation that are incredibly complex that make it very difficult to make it automatically. But it is something that we're going to have to start working on soon because threat actors will only be getting faster. Yeah, now it brings up a lot of really interesting questions, right? Because automated remediation means you need to give permissions to the remediation mechanism. Then how do you reconcile that with production code and impact of that and product development? And, so, and so The first step is to just get the continuous monitoring because that is the vast majority of companies already don't have that, right? The first step is make sure that companies are accurately aware, real-time what's happening on their infrastructure and attack surface. And then the next steps is, okay, start building workflows that work with that. Because there is quick fixes that you can apply, right? For the WordPress uh, bug from last week, you could potentially, it would be too difficult to basically update the plugin automatically. But what you could do is if there's a firewall in front of that environment, you could add a rule specifically making sure that this exploit that we're seeing in the world is blocked. So you're not really solving the problem and someone looking manually at your environment will probably still be able to exploit it. But at least the automated deployment of the threat that you're seeing in the wild is then prevented. Yeah. And that is really where we're moving towards is seeing, okay, how can we make, well, going from right now where we have this status quo where most companies are doing quarterly or sometimes even yearly pen tests to having continuous monitoring, continuous testing, and having that continuous data flow also analyzed for priorities. And then also to a certain extent, be able to either one-click solve things or fully zero-click basically automatically solve and remediate some of these issues. So if you look at this idea of automated remediation, the word automated triggers this idea of on both ends, a cold war, right? A cold war of how fast can I generate new attack vectors and how quickly I can have defense mechanisms that adapt quickly. What is your treatise on artificial intelligence as it applies to AI? Where is it that you think it's going to go? Just go as crazy as you want to go on this, but keep it within the boundaries of the realistic because you and I are both science fiction fans. I know where it can go, but where do you think the next five years do you predict AI will impact cybersecurity as an industry? So already what we're seeing today is that phishing will become vastly more difficult to detect simply because the vast majority of attacks nowadays, they're still very detectable. They're still very obviously wrong or misspelled or they don't use the right naming conventions in the email chain or whatever, right? 
Yeah. That will change. And we're already seeing changing that now that advanced phishing attacks are already happening. And that does have an impact, right? We're not seeing any on the technology side, on the technical exploitation side, we're not seeing anything yet. There's no AI hacker. It's all still largely manually done and manually being then still obviously a single hacker writes a piece of code that scans the whole internet automatically, but that step is still done completely manually. And I think that for the foreseeable future, it will stay that way because, well, quite frankly, this is already so scalable that there's really no point in making this AI driven. And the second aspect to it is right now our AI, well, basically our gen AI capabilities are very much focused on language model. And that is simply not the same as the threats that we are building, right? So yes, it can interpret code, it can read code, it can write code, but it's not that it can come up with very advanced threats towards systems that are new and innovative. It can only interpret older ones and come up with, well, variations of that. And that is simply not faster as a hacker doing that manually. So for now, I'm not too worried, at least in the coming years, we're not really worried about that aspect. But you're going to see that once exploits are known out there in the wild, even if there's no malware for that is public. So basically, very often, if a new bug comes out as a threat actor, you have to buy the malware from someone to then be able to deploy it. I think that soon we'll start to see that AI is able to, once a bug has been discovered, actually also interpret how it can be exploited and then write the malware itself. But again, that is not something that I'm really worried about because it's not disruptive enough compared to the current methodologies people use to deploy this malware. It just adds to the scale of the problem we have to solve. But on the phishing end, we're already seeing that the problem has become, on a different scale, difficult to solve. Okay, so in summary, you think that the production, creation, weaponization of AI is less of a risk, but the bigger risk is that some of the internal and external phishing and social engineering will get so sophisticated that we'll have to worry about some of that data breaches. Yeah, and I think that this, and to coincide that, automatically with the scalability of threat actors and threat factors, you start seeing that the ROI to target smaller companies, sometimes even startups, starts to increase. Whereas you saw that as a small company, you were usually still pretty good because if I would compromise you, the chances to extract a lot of capital from you by ransom would be small. But nowadays you start seeing ransomware deployments for as low as $10,000 or even less. So also for smaller companies, it's now becoming a serious risk that they will face these cybersecurity threats because of the scale it reaches and the automated capability that it has. Yeah. Do you think governments should regulate AI or do you think that's something that we should leave untouched for a while and see how it develops? Oh, that's a very different question, almost philosophical. And also, I'm not sure if I would really be the expert to talk on that, right? What I can say is that I'm very excited about the opportunity that AI will offer the world in terms of allowing people to also spend more time not doing repetitive tasks. I hope that as a society, we can build a system that actually allows everyone to benefit from those exploits. And that is already a bit doubtful, but we'll see if we can get there. I don't think that regulation will ever stop innovation in the sense that it can slow it down, but 
they will always be too slow. And at yeah. that point, the, the question should really be, well, if, even if they go all out in regulating it, what can they really accomplish with that? Yeah. And should we not think about how can we work together and make us focus on the impact AI can have and not necessarily on limiting that fact that AI can exist? Because yeah. AI will be there. And if it's not two years from now, it will be five years from now. And I doubt regulators can really have a real impact of the overall outcome of that innovation. Yeah. So in my opinion, the focus of the regulators and the states should be on well, trying to steer that innovation into an equal share for everyone. Yeah. All right. If we move away from governments as like the sort of top layer, now we move on to like large companies, right? That make up the large part of an economy of any country. I'm curious as to how awake many of them are in your experience to these challenges and then how do they source technology from companies like yours who are more ahead of the usual providers tell me how your typical large enterprise customer buys from companies like yours that are clearly pushing the boundaries and being faster to iterate on these threats than maybe the traditional incumbents but then they have to mitigate the risk of an unknown supplier how do you overcome that so one of the largest advantages that we have as Hadrian is that we are completely external. So we don't need access. We usually don't have to go to compliance processes, et cetera, because, well, we don't get access to anything that others shouldn't be having access to as well. And if we do get access to it, it's because of our tooling and you want to be aware of it. So, you know, better have us be the one that breaks you than others. If we're looking at a lead generation, because you're definitely right, as a new incumbent, it's very difficult to even get into a room with a CISO. And what we've seen work very well is conferences, especially being able to interact with what in the end will be your champions, the security personnel that is working for these teams that would be interacting with your tool and with your data directly. What we also seen works re really well is CISO recommendations. So once we have a customer that's happy with us, we, we ask them, hey, what do you think? Can you help us out? Can you make some interest for us? And actually, most CISOs are very willing to do that. Um, if they like the technology that you're building, if they're happy with the value that you provide, then they're actually keen to share some of these insights. Okay, these are all very, very practical. Fair enough. And when you look at, if we now go down a layer below that, and you look at the small and medium companies, what is the basic cyber tech stack that you recommend? If you were to pretend you're now back yep. in your 42-bit days and you're saying, hey, look, all these threat actors are coming up with faster ransomware. You guys need to think about all these things. What is the basic cyber tech stack you recommend out there? And, and this also goes for most startups, right? What I often recommend is that it's almost too obvious, but keep it simple. Keep it really simple and trying to go with one of the larger vendors. Microsoft is probably good enough for the vast majority of companies that we know about in the startup space. Google is also perfectly fine, right? But what specifically from those guys have tons of problems? Like what, are we talking about IDS system? Are we talking about managed firewalls? The vast majority of those things you don't really need yet as a startup, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, you can leverage the tooling that they offer in terms of cloud capabilities and security environments around that. As a startup, you definitely, most likely don't want to do things on-prem anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then you have your email and everything. You have it in a digital environment, 
I'm a big MacBook fan. So give all your people MacBooks. It, it makes it a bit more easier to manage if you choose, especially at the beginning of your company, you choose a single operating system. So either go with MacBooks or with Windows. But if you are merging that, then, well, your device management becomes vastly more complicated. But your whole IT infrastructure is not even security related. Just your whole IT work becomes more complicated. So my recommendation is always just keep it simple, even if that means that you lose some of the flexibility that you would have liked to have. We don't use Word at Hadrian. We don't use Excel. We don't use PowerPoint because we've chosen to go with the Google stack. And I get a lot of new employees coming in, especially if it's for people that have done sales at other companies. And they tell me, don't know how to use this Google thing yet. And I said, well, that's a pity. It shouldn't be very difficult for you to learn. And we're not going to use multiple different systems at Hadrian right now because we would open ourselves for more attack vectors. Let's look at this um, across all the types of companies. One of the things that I think affects everyone is the balance between the cybersecurity measures. Like, okay, you're not allowed to use PowerPoint, even though you just received a PowerPoint from an external party. You don't have it installed, right? So how do you find the right balance between cybersecurity measures and user experience for the employees, knowing that you're trying to optimize for security without reducing productivity? And in particular, in light of remote work and more devices, bring your own device with employees and connecting from home. And so what is your recommendation for companies? In an ideal scenario, if you're not really using outdated methodologies, you don't really have to sacrifice productivity, right? You can use your Notion environment very well together with your Google environment, preferably for an SSO connection, single sign-on. I always say as much as possible, try and use single sign-on because also passwords, you know, your employees suck at them and they will use bad passwords or they reuse passwords. So try and work with systems that enable you to integrate relatively easy with your security stack. And honestly, it's not that difficult as it might sound. And really believe you don't really have to sacrifice productivity. You have to sacrifice flexibility. That's for sure. Because, well, in an ideal scenario, you can use PowerPoint from one and Google Docs from the other and Excel from Microsoft. But those are choices that you're going to have to make. And that's a balance you have to strive but I don't think you'll lose productivity. I think you'll lose flexibility. All right. So if you deal with that and unfortunately something happens, there's crisis management. What are the best practices for crisis management and how does your company help companies who are affected by something that happens to them? Well, this is a good question. Incident response is its own whole industry. And like our company is, is usually not involved in incident response unless we have data that could have led to detecting it in advance. Like sometimes we actually had an incident when one of our customers had a ransomware deployment and well, he let us know and we said, yeah, we think we know how it happens because we told you two weeks ago about this possibility, but we are not called in to Im immediately remediate. And depending on the size of your company, I would always recommend to hire an external support for that both on the technical aspect, but also on all the other aspects of things you have to manage. You are probably not the expert that knows about everything that has to happen on the regulatory side, compliance side, privacy regulations, etc. And it's a good investment to just make sure that you have an expert helping you there out. Yeah. Best case scenario is you prevented it from happening all along. 
Worst case scenario is that you didn't prevent it and then you acted in an inappropriate way and you actually, well, basically broke some laws or made your customers very upset. And I can give you examples of the time at Libit when I was managing those data breaches. We had an external company help us there as well. And in the end, a large result was that our customers appreciated our honesty, our transparency around the situation, because there was a competitor that had been breached a couple of months prior that only informed their customers months later. And at that point, a lot of damage was already been done. So... Yeah, understanding that's not something you can fully take on yourself is probably the most important one. The other side of things is that right now, in terms of what you can do today, if you don't have a phone number to call, well, make sure you have one. Make sure that you know who to call and what to ask for if something happens. As a startup, this is very often never a priority. And that's fair, right? I'm not going to tell you that cybersecurity should be top of your mind if you're building your product, you're still looking for product market fit. But it can be less than one hour of work to just have a quick list of things that you know you can do if an incident happens. And the most important one is make sure you have someone to call. Roger, who do you call? John Wick? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Nice. Well, we've been going through this funnel. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we started off with governments, then we went to large companies, then went to small and mediums. We then dealt with the tech stack that those small and mediums use. We talked about incident response and what they're going through and balancing the right tech stack so that you can keep things simple and manage them well. And I wanna conclude with the individual, right? In every organization, there's always one person who ends up with the responsibility. And you know, these days, it's not always clear that person comes from a cybersecurity background. They might end up with that responsibility. They might be the IT person. They might be the most technically competent person in the team who's, you know, has some sysadmin responsibilities for the cloud infrastructure. So first of all, what is the typical profile that you see for that kind of person who ends up there? And the second of all is what advice would you give to them in terms of their career development? What specific skills or knowledge should they focus on? Should they go and do a CISSP, even if that's not their key thing, but as long as you have that responsibility that you should have some leadership or can you delegate that entirely to third-party providers? It's a good question. And again, the answer varies wildly on the type of company, the role, and what you want out of it. If you want to be a CISO, I think that the more important aspect is that you develop leadership qualities and also to a certain extent, business understanding. And the CISO doesn't need to be technically in-depth in some of the threats that it might face. You need to be a bit of a politician as well, right? But If you want to be a researcher on a team, then I think that doing a lot of those, well, call them certificates, et cetera, I don't think they're the most useful tool to validate what you've learned, but at least the market thinks so. So then doing some of those certificates really helps. And for a career, especially if you're early stage in cyber, yeah, I definitely recommend getting some of those. I personally will tell you that at Hadrian, I don't think I have a single hacker working for us that has a single certificate and they're all really good security engineers. So I would almost argue also to the people that they're in the leadership of those security companies or those companies and they're building a security team look broader than the certificates that some of these people present, right? Because some of the best security engineers, they might just be homeschooled or uh, they taught it themselves. Yeah, but the tricky part of the question, and I want to just hit it again. So one of them is qualifying an individual 
for their abilities. And I agree with you, like a certificate doesn't necessarily mean somebody's really good at something, right? But I'm looking at somebody who might be listening to this, who is the person who is responsible for some of the feature. I know, you know, people in different organizations, it might be the technical co-founder and they're asking themselves, they know that they may or not, may not be the right people in the future, but for now that's their responsibility. What would your recommendation be for them to polish themselves up around these topics and, and get to the point of competency where in the interim for the next year before the next funding round, or if it's a small business until it's more revenue, they can hire somebody who's more qualified than them. There's definitely certificates out there that could help you, right? But I would go back to my point about earlier when I said, keep it simple. And that is really your main responsibility at that point should be to just contain the size of your attack surface. Make sure that there's not too much weird stuff happening. And you can combine that relatively easily with something like a MITRE framework where you can kind of checkbox, see what's relevant to you and start well preparing around that. It's basically a similar process as getting your ISO certificate or your SOC 2 certificate, which is probably then also your responsibility if that's the role that you took upon within the company. But yeah, generally, those are relatively easy steps you can take to assess how far are you as a company? What should you be doing more of? And where do you have potential risks that you are currently unaware of? And that is then your main responsibility if you don't have a CISO or a VP of security yet. Fair enough. Makes sense. Now, I want to conclude with a further point on people. And when we started talking a little bit about the three things that happened to you back in the day as Lightbit, one of the ones that you shared, which is something, I forgot what the statistics are, but they're higher than you think for those that are listening, is a lot of cybersecurity incidents are from people within, bad actors from within, whether that's a, a employee who's frustrated or whether that's somebody who's intentionally been looking for a job with the view of displacing information that you have to a competitor. What best practices do you recommend, Roger, to qualify people when you're evaluating them without it becoming this weird private security thing for the person who has nothing to do with technical? What's best practices today in qualifying an internal threat actor? Uh, let me just start by saying you can never fully exclude an incident from that light happening, right? And you're going to always have employees with access to certain environments, and this will always be a risk. But the biggest mistake you can make is simply ignore the risks exist. Once you realize that this is something that you have to look out for, the majority of the steps you can take to actually prevent some of these issues are fairly simple. It's about, well, making damn sure that someone that comes work for you has a strong reference also on character and it makes sense for them to actually apply to a job for you at your company. It's about making sure that from a permission management system, you are not just giving everyone full admin, but are actually thinking about what does a person really need? And can I reduce the access to that level as well? Potentially even for a short while. And then in a later stage, someone gets promoted or has been with you for a longer time, you can extend those permissions. But it's really about simply having that switch on in your mind where you're saying, okay, this is a risk I could potentially face. Let's look at the easy steps to resolve. And honestly, even as recent as 
I think about a month ago, I was looking at Hadrian. We're using HubSpot to manage our deal flow and sales channels. And I was looking at the list of super admins and everyone made absolute sense, like head of product marketing, head of sales. And then I was looking at myself and I was like, oh, I'm also a super admin still. And that makes sense because at the beginning of the company, I was largely dealing with the sales process and I was also in charge of the HubSpot environment. But now that we're almost 70 people, I'm not. And I log into HubSpot quite often, but it's usually to change information about customers, et cetera. It's not to change the fundamental structures anymore. So at that point, I was like, okay, I actually really shouldn't have these super permissions. And it's about being smart and being sharp on these permission systems and the data you share with your internal team. And it's really not that difficult. It's all about having the mindset to check for that. Very wise advice. So with that, Roger, thank you so much for your time. That was an absolutely amazing chat. Wish we could go on further, especially some of the dystopian stuff, but maybe for another time. Dev, with that, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, guys. Thank you, Carlos. <laughs>